We're going to uh, read from Colossians chapter 1 and verses 15 to 20. Over the last uh, Sunday mornings, we've been doing a series about the glory of Christ and his cross, just understanding more of who Jesus is, his character, his nature, and uh, the, the work of Jesus and the cross. And this morning, we come to think of what uh, I'm terming the cosmic Christ. Colossians chapter 1 at verse 15. Let's hear God's word together. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in him and everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. And the first thing we want to think of this morning is that Christ is the image of the invisible God. As Paul put it, he is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You've heard me say before that first century Israel was occupied by the Romans who claimed that Caesar was divine. But remember, way back in the first century AD, there were no media, there was no TV, no radio, no newspapers. So how, if you're Caesar in Rome, do you control an amazingly large world-embracing empire? The answer was imagery used. And for people in those days, without books or radio or television, images that they saw were very much more powerful than perhaps even for us today. So the image of the Caesar of the day appeared on coins, in the marketplace, on jewelry, on goblets or mugs, in the gymnasium. Wherever you looked, you saw images of Caesar. It was the reminder of Roman power that ruled the land. Today we have many images that are quite pervasive, the golden arches of McDonald's or the Nike swoosh. But unlike Nike, the Roman Empire had the power of life and death over all its citizens, and it wielded that power ruthlessly. Whenever there was a threat to Rome, the soldiers waded in, better trained, better equipped, and able to quash any challenge to the power of Caesar. And so when the Apostle Paul began to speak of Jesus being the express image of the invisible God, people would have sat up and noticed. They would have noticed big time. Because everywhere they saw the image of Caesar, and yet, though they were told that they had to worship Caesar as divine, here was Paul saying, Jesus is the image of the eternal invisible God. 
That was revolutionary, even sedition. But we could make a mistake here quite easily, and I think I've made it in times past when I've been preaching. Generally speaking, when we refer to an image, we refer to something quite different from the original in essence, but like it in form or appearance. For us, an image is either an exact uh, copy of the original or a representation of it that reminds us of the original, a bit like the queen's head on our coins. The image isn't the same as the queen, but reminds us of what she looked like in the portrait from which the image was taken. And here's the thing. Commentators tell me that the word Paul used for image, icon in the Greek, uh, and therefore you get, you see the English word icon or iconography, the Greek word is E-I-K-O-N, that the word points to a real counterpart of the original. Gerhard Kittel put it this way, and I quote, when Christ is called the image of God, All the emphasis is on the equality of the image with the original. I think we need to try and get the importance of that. The emphasis is on the equality of the image with the original. In other words, Paul says, Jesus isn't just like God, he is God. Paul says that When we think of Jesus, it's not merely to think of him as a reminder of God or like God in some way, but the image expressly of God's innermost essence. He images God's real being because he shares that real being. That's why Paul writes in verse 19, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. How can that be? How can we, as we thought recently, the eternal God taste death? How can the fullness of all that God is dwell in bodily form in Jesus? But that's what he writes. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. These are incredible statements to make about someone. And if that someone was a mere human being, they would be the most incredibly bad statements to make unless they were absolutely true. For if Jesus was a mere man or even a great prophet, you could not make the statement about him that the Apostle Paul has made. But of course, they reflect what Jesus said about himself. We've only time maybe to look at one uh, instance of what Jesus said about himself. John 14 and verses 9 and 10. This is what he said. And uh, Thomas says, asked him the question about how how did they know the way to heaven? And he says, I I alone am the way to the Father. Another outrageous statement, unless it's absolutely true. And even as it's true, it's outrageous. Anyway, Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own, the Father. It is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Goodness, there's no room for compromise here. Either Jesus is God or he isn't. Either all we've heard up until now is blasphemous nonsense or it's the absolute truth. But why is it important? Because it means that every recorded word of Jesus carries with it 
the force of the eternal God, Lord and King of all the universe and of all things. In other words, to ignore the words of Jesus is to disobey them and to turn against and reject God himself. So here's the question for you as it is for me. How seriously do we take the words of Jesus? And I've been expressing how we feel that God has been speaking to us about a number of areas, loving God and loving his word and his people and so forth. But how seriously do we take those words of Jesus? Love one another as I have loved you. That the people in front of you, beside you, behind you, or whatever in church today, Jesus says, love him or her or them to the same extent that I'm prepared to love you, that I have loved you. Wow. Words of Jesus, words of God, take them seriously. Or what about forgive one another as I have forgiven you? Church can be a place of the most incredible joy, the most incredible love, and the most incredibly good things, but it can also be a place of the most incredible hurt. They're dear Christian brothers and sisters who let us down. They're dear Christian brothers and sisters who don't keep their word, who fail to do things when they say they'll do them, who fail to turn up when they say they'll turn up. And there's people, let's be honest, who say things in church that sometimes you wouldn't hear in a workplace. Jesus says, forgive one another as I have forgiven you. Words of Jesus, words of God, words to be obeyed. It's Jesus who says that in repenting from sin and believing into his name that we have salvation. It's Jesus who says that we are a light that is to shine in a dark world for Jesus. And these things are not nice ideas, but commands. Love one another as I have loved you is not a nice ideal. It's a command. Forgive one another as I have forgiven you. It's not a nice ideal. It's a command of Jesus. He is the image of the express God, the image of the invisible, eternal God. He is God. So therefore, obey his words. And the second thing is that Paul says Christ is, in words that we might find slightly difficult to understand, the firstborn, verses 15 and 16. Uh, If I may read those again, if you don't mind. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Well, To say that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, is Paul not taking away something of the divinity of Christ that we've just been talking about? Uh, And uh, the old King James Version doesn't help us very much because it refers to Jesus as, quote, the only begotten son, as if somehow he was born. uh, 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 And, of course, we know he was born through the virgin birth, but the only begotten son. To confuse things further, the Christmas carol of Come All Ye Faithful speaks of Jesus begotten, not created. It seems to be a contradiction in terms. What was Paul getting at when he says that Jesus is the firstborn? Well, in Jewish society, the firstborn was always the father's heir. 
always. And so Paul wasn't suggesting that somehow Jesus was born at a later stage after the Father, that he was a later addition to the Trinity, as it were. But what he was saying is that Jesus is supreme because he is the heir of everything. Hebrews 1 and verse 2 says this, In these last days he, that is God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he created the universe. In other words, Jesus was with God before the world began, and in eternity has always been with God. In other words, the supremacy of Jesus as the image of the invisible God is complete because he is the heir of all creation. To put it another way, as Paul does, the created order was made by Jesus and exists for Jesus. And one day the heir of everything will enter fully into his inheritance before the watching world when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord of all. So he's the firstborn. He's the heir of everything. Thirdly, Paul says Christ is before all things. Uh, Verse uh, 17 of the passage that we read earlier. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. To say Christ is before all things could mean that Paul was pointing to his pre-existence as God before the creation of the world. Or it could mean that Paul was saying he has preeminence in all of creation, first in importance of all things that exist. But of course, actually, both things are true. What is really interesting here is that Paul also says that in Jesus, all things hold together. I don't know how much you have thought about that. It was something that became a a thought process in me over this uh, past week. Look at Hebrews 1 and verse 3. Uh, This is where uh, the writer to Hebrews takes what Paul is saying here uh, in Colossians and explains it in slightly different terms. He says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation, the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now, just just take note of that because this is what we're thinking about, the all things of Jesus, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He sat down with a work that is completed. Here in Hebrews, we are given a glimpse beyond science to Jesus as the ultimate explanation of the universe and of life in all its forms. Peter Lewis, in his marvelous book, The Glory of Christ, put it this way, and I quote, We split a single atom and produce a chain reaction of devastating force through the energies that are released. He, that is, Christ is the power which keeps the entire atomic universe in check. Thus, Jesus is the sustainer of the universe and all it contains, even the newly discovered compact system of Earth-sized exoplanets orbiting Trappist-1, a low-mass cool star 40 light-years away from here. And you may understand that was not my own knowledge, but taken from the BBC website on the exploration of new planets. 
We have a vast space out there. Scientists are very excited about these new exoplanets. Uh, Why on earth they call a star Trappist? I'm not quite sure. A monk of a star. Jesus is Lord and King and sustainer of the whole universe. And Peter Lewis uh, speaks of how this is important that all things hold together in Jesus. You know, the world we inhabit believes in things like the survival of the fittest. We feel that the fittest people or the organisms come to the top. The, the world we live in believes in the doctrine of fate, case, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be, or maybe good karma or bad karma. But what the Bible tells us is that there's a huge, expansive theology of God who holds all things together in Christ. And I wonder how often you or I have thought of an old doctrine, a doctrine called the providence of God. Let me quote from Peter Lewis again. God's providence is his support, government, guidance of the universe in general and of our world in particular, fallen and rebellious though it is. And you see, when we think that all things are held together in Christ, it's not just that he sustains the universe, not just that ultimately he will be the one who will perfect the new heaven and the new earth, but he is the one who brings together all the torn fragments of our sinful, rebellious, broken world and brings them together and unites them together in him. And one day he will bring it all together again. Our world is like a piece of broken pottery. But it's not that the potter is just gluing the broken fragments together. Jesus wants to hold all things together, reconciling people to God, sinners to a holy God, reconciling a broken, fallen world to a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, that in everything it's all working together in him. And the fourth thing, final thing, I think we learn from these words is Christ is the head of the body, the church. Uh, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Now, here's something you may not have thought about. Uh, I don't mean to be condescending in saying this, but I say you may not have thought about it because I hadn't thought about this until this week. We may be very used to the idea that God has created the universe and God has made everything. We may believe it up here in our heads. But I wonder, has it ever occurred to you, because it only occurred to me this week, that actually it took the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus to produce a church of ransomed sinners. You see, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you read the story of creation, however we understand that, and we know it's not meant or supposed to be a scientific uh, treatise, but we understand that God spoke and it came to being. God's word was so powerful that he called stars and planets and 
life on earth, everything into existence. God spoke and it happened, but it took the incarnation, the death and the resurrection of Jesus on earth in order to create the church. Wow. That's how important you are to God. The God whose word was powerful enough to create a universe is the God who comes to earth as a tiny baby, helpless, dependent upon his parents, who grows through childhood and into manhood, and who lives and preaches and dies and rises again from the dead. He did all that to create the church. So the church is not second best in the universe. The church is not something that is an afterthought of God. The church is not something unimportant that we shouldn't really worry too much about. The church is the jewel in the crown of Jesus Christ's diadem, our crown that he wears, because he loves you and he loves me. And you see, I think the church has two great tasks in many ways. We, 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 I think it, it, first of all, expresses the character of Jesus. That's why it's important to go back to the words of Jesus, the commands of Jesus, love one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, bear each other's burdens, because in so fulfilling the commands of Jesus, we are a people who are demonstrating to the world the character and the life and the love of Jesus. So if you won't forgive someone who's hurt you, the world is not seeing Jesus in you or me. If you refuse to love someone in the Christian church because you don't like their views on something, that differs from you, then you're not living the life of Jesus. And the world will look on and say, there ain't much love in that place. One of the sad things about American politics is that those who voted for Donald Trump and those who voted against Donald Trump have now said they will not eat in each other's homes, they'll not be friends with each other anymore. Look, it doesn't matter if you have a different political standpoint, a different viewpoint on some of the minutiae of what church is about. There's a core belief system that we need to all believe in. But if we don't love one another as Jesus has said we should, the world cannot see the character and the life of Jesus in us. We are to express the character of Jesus. We're also to carry on his earthly ministry. He came that he might bring salvation. He came as the bearer of good news. He came as the bearer of reconciliation with God being made possible through his death and resurrection. We have to carry on that mission of Christ to go into all the world, to make disciples. It's under the headship and lordship of Jesus, the source of our life and our flourishing I'm going on a bit longer than intended this morning, but I think this is important. What should it look like for us? In a book called Jesus Now, Frank Viola writes this, and I quote, I hope it can come up on screen. This is very relevant to session after Monday night. Whenever there is a decision before us regarding the Lord's work or the Lord's people, the salient question should not be, what do we think should be done? Or what can we agree on? as the spiritual leaders. Rather, it should be, what does the Lord want in this situation? And my plea to you this morning is this. Make this your prayer. Lord, not what we want, 
for what you want for the church. And so we believe that God is calling us to make the presence of God in our lives a priority, developing a culture of expectancy that God will speak to us. God is calling us to read our whole Bibles. Community Bible Experience and E100 have been great, but more could be done and we'll explore that. That God is calling us to grow together in love. We've had our district meetings. We had our paraclesis course, but we need to put it into practice and care for one another in the church. And God is calling us to get to know our neighbors, people who live next door in our streets at work, in Clonduff, in Clarewood, in Nace, in Porto, even to the ends of the world. And somehow to simplify church life, to encourage our flourishing in Christ our head. We may not have it all worked out. And even if we do come up with a new vision document, whatever it might look like, we still won't have it all worked out. But those four things, knowing God, knowing his word, knowing one another, knowing our neighbors, that's surely the essence of what God is calling us to be as his people. Just as the worship team come up on platform, could I encourage you to close your eyes and to pray? And I I, I want just that you would take a moment or two to think through what you've heard. And I want to do something, and it's important we all keep our eyes closed, that I don't usually do, and um, I'm going to ask just in a moment. I'm going to ask you, in the safe space of people keeping their eyes closed, to actually put your hand up if you feel God has been speaking to you this morning. Go to ask that in a moment. But let's pray. Father God, God eternal, speak and continue to speak. It may be, Father, that as we have thought this morning of the cosmic Christ, that we need to confess that our view of Jesus has been too small. We need to ask that you would fill us afresh with your love and with your power, that somehow we may get to grips with the person and work of your Holy Spirit in each one of us. may be that you're calling us to make a determination to get to know one another better. I wonder what that would look like for you. Maybe inviting somebody from church that you've never had coffee with to have coffee with in Ark or somewhere else. Maybe actually calling in, saying, hi, we've been neighbors for years, but What about it? Just getting to know one another, getting to know our neighbors better. Oh, Father, forgive us if we have neglected to tell our neighbors that we belong to Jesus. Give us a new vision of how we might love our neighbors as ourselves. 
So there may be a response that you need to make this morning to God. I'm going to give you just a moment of quiet. But what I'd love to do, and it's, I hope for the right reasons, just please, as we all keep our eyes closed, if you feel God has been speaking to you this morning, why not just put a hand up that we might see, that I might see. And as you, thank you, as you believe that God has been speaking to you, ask him what you're going to do about it. Hear our prayers, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.